Listening to Jeff talk with Kwame Johnson is a treat. Kwame has an inspiring story, and his passion for the importance of our youth being mentored and having reliable relationships is a gift. Kwame has leveraged his own experience into what is now his life's work, and the difference he is making is incredible. Leaders will love Kwame simply because he is forward-thinking and he reminds us all to simply lead aligned to our why. Enjoy. Ladies, gentlemen, educators, leaders, welcome to Leader Chats. We're excited to see you, excited to bring this content to you this week. For our leaders listening or watching, I'll just remind you, if you're a member of the Leadership Circle, you have access to these video series. If you are not, you may be listening to our podcast, which is publicly available. Today, you will see why we invited this particular guest. We don't invite randomly. We actually don't even schedule six months out. We try to be as relevant as we can based upon the current scenarios and challenges of the day. Um, today, I'm thrilled to actually have a guest here with us live sitting across the table from me, which is exciting. We don't always have. And let me introduce, and by the way, I'm gonna do a very quick bio because our guest bio is part of the narrative and part of the story and part of the message of the day. So I'm gonna be as brief as I possibly can. We're going to be talking with Kwame Johnson, who was named the most admired CEO by Atlanta Business Chronicle. Kwame serves as the president and CEO of Big Brothers Big Sisters Metro Atlanta, overseeing the largest and most effective youth mentoring agency in the state of Georgia. Kwame is also the award-winning author of The Hope Inside, Harnessing the Power of Mentorship in Life and Career. Kwame is a highly sought-after public speaker and consultant in the area of fundraising, leadership development, strategy, marketing, and program innovation and we're going to dig in right now so ladies and gentlemen i welcome kwame thanks for being here thanks for having me jeff glad yeah. to be here yeah so how how have you been you we live close to each other we didn't know this yeah. right mm -hmm. um so thank you for coming in today and spending this time with us i know that you do events and public speaking often but you know we're very fortunate to have you with us. No, glad to be here. It's in my neighborhood, and you know, I know we've crossed paths in, in former lives, and uh, now I know that that is you at the gym. So I'll come say hello next time <laughs> and push you a little bit on the on the weights. You know, so <laughs> yeah, sounds good. So yeah. I just read part of your bio, yeah. right? So yeah. I think what's important is maybe if you can give us a little bit and just walk us through your story mm -hmm. i mean you've had such success and you have you'll have future success as well but that success isn't based upon you deciding one day there's you've had this incredible narrative and runway to doing what you do now can you can you kind of catch us up to speed because our our listeners won't know that like i know that because like I said, I've been cyber stalking you for a while now, so I've gotten to learn about you yeah. more than you have with me. So talk us through it. Yeah, well, I'll give you the the modified, uh, well, short version of it. It's, it's a long journey, which I've been blessed to just be able to do amazing work all around this country with young people. Um, I'm from Syracuse, New York. A uh, very cold place. Uh, both my parents were educators. Actually, my mom uh, was the first woman and African-American woman to be the, the president of the school board in Syracuse, New York, where I'm from. And my father was a health teacher uh, for over 30, 40 years in public education. So they, you know, set me up in this lane of service and education and helping young people. Uh, Syracuse is a really tough place to grow up. Not a lot of opportunities uh, plagued with violence and crime 
And I did a really good job navigating that, but over time started to get involved with that as a young person and made some bad decisions. Uh, when I was 17, I went away uh, to prison for, for a whole year. So almost threw my life away, um, but I met some young people there that changed my life and helped me find my passion. And uh, from those young men that I met and their stories and them believing in me and not believing in themselves and them pushing me to get back on track. And my mentors that have helped me, my track coach, who would bring me my schoolwork every week so I could do my schoolwork behind jail, behind bars, um, uh, for taking my SATs behind bars and becoming the first kid to ever do that in the United States of America. Um, I got a second chance at life. And I decided to use that second chance at life to become what I call a social entrepreneur. So I've been trying to solve some of the most wicked issues our country faces. And in my opinion, the biggest one is poverty. There's so many bad things that come out of poverty. Uh, I don't have to explain that. But in my opinion, that is more challenging than racism or any other issue we face as a country. Poverty is our number one issue. And what I've learned in doing this work in, for 20 years now is that the best, fastest way out of poverty is to help a young person graduate high school. So we got to keep kids in school and we got to keep them learning. I'm a C student, so I keep things very simple. Um, but after getting out of jail and going to Hampton University and then starting my career in youth development in D.C., uh, came to Atlanta eight years ago and uh, joined Big Brothers and Big Sisters five years ago as a CEO. Let's make sure I got this right. You're the first student ever mm -hmm. to take the SATs while incarcerated. Correct. That's so, a long story, but yes, that's that's correct. Okay, so um, and you had mentioned clearly part of this this story is that you were receiving support. You were receiving some mentorship, some uh, some probably really caring people holding your hand through this process. Yes, because they cared about you. They saw potential and so forth, and that led to some motivations while behind bars. Yes for you to prepare so that you would be ready when you left. Correct. Am I saying that accurately? Yeah, mentorship, that's what it's all about. Yeah. And if you think about it, we all have benefited from mentors to get to where we are. That without, without a mentor, none of us would be where we are right now. You and I had a chance to briefly talk about this concept of vulnerability. Yeah. And um, I assume that you benefited from kind of embracing this vulnerable state relative to the things that you've learned, some of your background, some of your experiences. One dilemma I see in educational leaders is um, a struggle for them to be vulnerable. Sometimes the worry, if they are too vulnerable, that that could um, mess with the reputation within the community they serve. I'm not so sure that's accurate. I think we're pushing leaders to be, become more vulnerable, but educational leaders start to feel like they're gonna be judged based upon proficiency not vulnerability. Can you talk about the value of vulnerability as you've experienced it? Yeah, it's it's been a journey for me. So it started when I got my first job in D.C. I worked for a guy named Bob Woodson, big civil rights leader, doing a lot of work in communities with gangs and all kind of things. We met, my, my story resonated with him and he gave me a chance and he showed me how to get comfortable with my story, right? So when you come out of jail, you know, black guy with a bald head and some muscles, like you don't want to intimidate people. You don't want people to fear you, you know? So, I, you know, I've, I, I'm, I'm conscious of how I have to walk through life. But what I've learned is getting comfortable with my story has enabled me to connect with people and more importantly, give people 
you know, things that I've learned through making bad decisions that can help them. Like your story can be someone's lifeline. Your story can be someone's survival guide. But too too often leaders aren't comfortable with their story. And in my opinion, if you're not comfortable with, with your story, you're really not comfortable with, with yourself and you really can't show up as the best leader. So you got to get comfortable with it. And I'm not talking about get out there and tell everybody your dark, deep and darkest secrets. But I want to know more about you than where you went to college or what fraternity you're you're a part of. I want to know about who you really are, because in leadership and in this business we are in, in education, it's re- we're in a relationship business. Yes. And you can't build, in my opinion, real relationships with people if you're not authentic about who you are. And people connect to vulnerability because we all have it. My story is different than yours, Jeff, but you got a story. And I guarantee you there's some things you went through that could be helpful to somebody. And we just have to be comfortable with that and share that and lean into it as leaders. Kwame, when did you discover, you know, so you had this background, you had this motivation, and then you started to experience success. You describe yourself as a social entrepreneur. Yes. Can I say that right? Yeah. Okay. When did you know that mentorship would end up being, you know, your business, so to speak? I mean, this is what you lead. Now, you had mentors along the way, as you described in your story. When did you kind of discover that almost that is... That's kind of part of your driving why, it seems. Like, when did that come to come to light for you? Yeah, well, I spent a year with 50 young men that looked just like me, but I had a different outcome than, than them because I had mentors in my life. I had my track coach still recruiting for me. I had folks supporting me, my parents, and I was able to become a CEO. These young men, when you look at the criminal justice system, I want you to think about me because I'm no different than anybody you see on the news. The difference is I had mentors in my life. So when I saw that that worked for me and it enabled me to go from a tough place to now, you know, having a really good life, I said, I want to help other young people have this same experience. So I've doubled down in most of my career has been around mentorship because I know it works in particular for young people who are having struggles in their life and help them get to that next level. So, Last month, we celebrated, I'm doing air quotes for those that are listening, uh, Black History Month, Yeah. right? And while uh, there's, I think there's tremendous value in in that, I also um, sometimes was challenged in that, you know, we we designate this particular month for it. I see activities that may be helpful, may not be helpful, um, may bring to light some of the current issues, opportunities, successes, and some things that just don't. Yeah. But... One thing that we see in schools right now is um, a huge challenge in having conversations specific to issues of equity, race, poverty, etc. You mentioned poverty being the most significant issue. Um, we could probably have a, a conversation too about the correlation between you know race, poverty, etc. in this country. But I guess my question is, how how do you experience and how do you navigate this conversation as it relates to issues of equity? Because that's a difficult political one happening in schools right now. Yeah, you know, so I don't know a way to solve racism, right? But I do know a way to solve poverty. And I do know if you don't live in poverty, chances are racism doesn't affect you as much. Right. So I'm a C student. So I just got to keep things, you know, solving racism is a heart challenge and moral sort of compass issue that I don't know if we'll ever get in front of. But I do know if we can help young people and particularly young people of color get out of poverty, then they got a better shot of taking advantage of the American dream. We may never solve racism, 
but we can solve poverty. There's examples of it. And we know if a kid graduates high school, their chances of upward mobility and not in, ending up in poverty or in the criminal justice system or pregnant at a young age goes way down. So what I've leaned into, and you know, we only, we're all human. We only do so much. My, my, what I'm leaning into my lever, my lane is, is solving poverty, not eliminating, but solving. So when you, um, when you are focusing, when your organization is, is focusing on supporting students and obviously poverty being something that you're, you're, you're working against trying to support students move out of that, it, you know, changes, changing the trajectory of the life of a child. Um, what are some of the challenges that your organization is facing right now as it relates to moving kids from A to B? Yeah. So, I, you know, Coming out of COVID, and I think this is even before COVID, we talked about this a little bit. What I see is that young people are in crisis, in particular inner cities. And I, poverty is not just an urban issue. It's a suburban and rural issue. It may be a different color, skin color, but poverty is poverty. And people who are living in poverty struggle, right? So during COVID, I was getting all these calls from principals, in particular middle school principals, saying we're, we're seeing things in our school buildings play out that we've never seen before with mental health, with disruption, with violence, social media kind of wrapped on top of it as a bow, and that they were worried if we didn't get in front of it, that they would have more issues for young people. And we see that playing out in a lot of major cities now in different ways. So we had to come up with some solutions that were different and innovative to what we've done before. And we've always mentored young people. Volunteers can sign up to be a big or a big brother or a big sister. You spend a year with a young person minimum, mentoring them, you know, in school or after hours. But we've never had a program that could scale across a whole grade level, for example. That was principals were asking us for. So for the first time in our history, we are now hiring train training uh, paid professional mentors. And some of these folks are folks who are already in the school building, like paraprofessionals. They may not want to be a teacher, but they want to work with kids. We hire them and train them and put them in a different role because what we're, we're seeing in our schools is there's kids, most kids can go through the whole school day and never interact with an adult outside of instruction. And you talk about the issues these kids are coming to school with, lack of food, lack of things they ha don't have at home, mental health, drugs, and their whole day, they don't get to talk to anybody about that. And that's, and we, we're, we're going in with the solution to solve for that, not just here in Atlanta, but across the country. So, um, this this would be fun to talk about. So one challenge that we are seeing in schools is obviously incredible shortage of people. Yeah. Right. Certified staff, classified staff, bus drivers, right, uh, people who support students in the cafeteria, etc. Runs the gamut. Um, in the meantime, some of our challenges and worries in schools has to do with you know, some of the, the, the learning dilemmas that also occurred during COVID, right? Kind of increase this gap on who had access and who didn't. Well, I actually don't think we can solve this with instruction. So I'm, I'm actually, I think, agreeing with you. Of course, we need quality instruction, but I don't think we, we've been able to instruct ourselves into greatness in a school environment, I think great schools are caring places that are really devoted to relationships with kids. So I see a really interesting opportunity in what you're describing here, and I can only imagine you may envision that in the future as well. Am I, am I accurate? No, you're right. And, and instruction is a huge 
part, right? But we put too much on teachers, we put too much on schools and school leadership and expect them to solve all the, the issues that are coming to their front door, right? So if a kid is coming to school hungry or if they don't have glasses to see the chalkboard, it doesn't matter how good your curriculum is. It doesn't matter how good you are as a teacher. So what I'm trying to solve for on my side is eliminating those barriers, right? So for me, is I'm, again, I'm a C student. So there are really three ingredients I've learned in 20 years of doing this work to really help a young person go from, 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 from something challenging to the next level. The first thing is called removing barriers. Too often young people are showing up in school with a whole histo history of issues in front of them that, that they have to cross just to get to the school building, right? They show up at the school building, they got these issues. So the nonprofit sector, which I've been a part of, should be helping schools remove those barriers. Food, housing, clothing, mental health. We got to wrap schools with wraparound services. I think schools should really be community centers, in my opinion. That's a whole nother topic. Yeah, it is. So the first one is removing barriers. That's the first step, because it doesn't matter what the instruction is if the kid had got these barriers in front of them. The second step is empowerment. We got to show people, empower them, that they can take advantage of their lives. Their, their neighborhood may not change. Their family's dynamics may not change. But if you can teach a man to fish, they can fish for themselves. So empowerment and mentorship comes in so important with empowering young people, showing them they can do it. That's why your, your story is important. You got a model for young people. Young people don't want to hear a sermon. They want to see one. Show me how you did it. That's what mentors can do. The third is hope, right? Hope to me is the most important thing. I've seen so many young people, even if their barriers were not removed, even if they weren't empowered, but if they had hope that tomorrow would be better, that there was some light at the end of the tunnel, I've seen young people push through the most tough situations and get to that next level. So for me, it's removing barriers, it's empowerment, and it's creating hope. And that's what mentors do. They create hope for young people. I know you can't like study that in some research lab, but I've just seen it to work in the work that I've done with young people, in particular young people that are far removed from the educational system. I'm going to make sure to send you um, some of the leader chat information we did on hope recently yeah we just did a really great leader chat with somebody who wrote a book relative to the science of hope um really real and i this is new information to me because yeah. we sometimes say hope is not a strategy you've yeah. heard us that saying yeah. um the point they make is well you're wrong because there is a science behind hope and what that does to an individual when studied accurately wow it is it's fascinating i'm going to get it to you i think you'll love it and my question is, as you now are, you have these lofty goals for how to support schools, specifically students who need extra support in schools, um, and this potential of schools becoming more of a community center in the future. And I think, by the way, that needs to happen whether we are ready for it or not, yeah. because I think the future of education is going to shift before our eyes based upon a myriad of challenges and opportunities. That being the case, what are some of your challenges? As you kind of launch this really significant idea of, let's get more people face-to-face -face with students who need it in school, what ends up being some of the things that are just hard for you to grapple with? Yeah, you know, these things are not easy to implement, right? These are new types of models. And I think most leaders understand they, we have to start doing things different. Things cost money. It, it, it takes a different way of looking at solving a problem, right? So my, I think the problem are adults, not kids, right? I've always said that. The, the, if, if, we have, if you have the right leadership in a school building, I can go to school in the same neighborhood as another school and have, they have different leaders. You, you know this. Yes. If you have the right, I believe with leadership, any problem can be solved with the right leadership. I don't care what the problem is. 
So we got to get the right leadership and we got to give them the right support. I think in many ways, teachers and principals and leaders aren't set up for success. When I see what they're dealing with on a day to day basis, instruction is like last, you know, before, you know, it, it's, it's solving all these social issues that come into their door. We got to solve for that. There are kids that are going to have be fine. They go to school. They have both parents in the household. They're going to probably go to college. I think what we need to think about is those young people that don't have those support systems that are going to be at risk of dropping out or making bad decisions. That's where I'm, I want to lean into because um, if we solve that, then we make a, the the country better. Are are you having a hard time thinking about as you consider scaling to support the leadership challenges in schools? Just pragmatically speaking, do you do you think it's going to be hard to find the people or to help support, or do you think um, or, or do you think there are some other major challenges in the way? I mean, we're struggling with people in general. Mm-hmm. Right, finding um, committed workforce. Is that something you're facing, or is that because maybe in the school we rely on accreditation and we rely on you know teachers being certified? Is that the barrier? Yeah. No, for us, we, we actually have a, a list of people who want to work for us. And in many ways, these are people who work in the school system already, but they want to be a, a paid mentor on my staff to still work in schools, but work with kids in a different kind of I way. See. So for me, the challenge is, is funding and scaling, right? I think we have enough caring adults out there who want to work with young people. We're just going to be deploying them in schools in a different way. And guess what? One day a school system may say, you know, we don't need big brothers and big sisters. We're going to try to figure out how to do this on our own. And I'm fine with that. My overall goal is to make mentorship a part of what we do in public education, like make it part of the fabric. We got teachers, we got guidance counselors, we got coaches, but we don't have a layer of mentorship. I did a talk with some some kids who had already been kicked out of school uh, on papers, ankle bracelets, in the criminal justice system in some way. And I talked to them because too often we don't hear from young people like, what could we have done different in society? What could we have done different? What could have changed your outcome? And most of them said, man, I wish I had someone I could have talked to in school before I decided to start smoking weed, before I started to hang out with the wrong crowd, before I decided to stop going to school. These young people are, are looking for this type of support. School systems just don't have it at scale right now to, to, to solve for it. Are you experiencing with your organization um, a similar challenge that schools are facing relative to this kind of a polarizing political climate we're in? I mean, so, you know, to be, to summarize it, schools right now, leaders in schools and in districts um, find that they are more hampered, they are le- less effective due to just the incredible political climate that is pulling them in multiple directions, right? It's almost you have this extreme right, this extreme left, this significant amount of people that are very level-headed in the middle that sometimes get ignored. And so it's just very loud. And there's a lot of things coming across, a lot of challenges coming across the desks of leaders. Is that impacting you and your work right now, too? It is. You know, again, it kind of goes back to what I was saying about the issue being adults and and adult issues. The kids are like the last thing we think about. And a lot of school systems I've worked with, what I've learned is that many of them are like employment agencies instead of service agencies. And what I mean by that is a lot of the issues they deal with are adult issues. So kids get, that's the last thing we think about, right? Are the kids, right? And that's what we're there to do. But is there all these adult issues and political issues and 
that that take up so much of the t- time of leaders in schools when where we should be focusing is how do we create innovative solutions for young people and think differently like i talk a lot about blockbuster i don't think any of us want to be blockbuster in the youth development sector we are at risk of that if we don't change to meet the needs of, of young people and i think schools are at risk of that if we don't change and meet the needs of, of, of young people and society and what they need today yeah i mean we need to be apple right yeah yeah, <laughs> yeah we gotta think that we gotta be we gotta think entrepreneurially that's why i say i'm a social entrepreneur because entrepreneurs solve problems you know if you approach your work that way you'll approach it differently if you just if this is just a job for you and you this is a career path and you want to retire like i don't want to have to do this for the rest of my life i want to open up a tiki bar in hawaii one day I don't, like i want to put myself out of business and if we, we so that's how i approach the work you know i know i have a unique connection point because i went through some tough stuff and i, I i've experienced it um so i approach it differently i, I don't want to have to do this forever and i think we need to all think that way we all need to be problem solvers and be innovative and think like an entrepreneur would to solve some of these issues. Let's let's talk about this because yeah. so you know you've you've described um, you know kind of your transition to leadership, but it sounds like you a lot of your leadership philosophy and strategy as an entrepreneur is likely about taking some risks. Yeah, and I actually see that one dilemma amongst educational leaders is that they're sometimes promoted to be safe. Right, and safety, by the way, isn't working for all of our students. Yeah, it may be work for some. Yeah, safe systems, traditional systems, they work only for some. Taking risks as a leader puts somebody kind of um, out on their own, for which they often don't survive. Can you talk about the risk taking of leadership and what you've experienced and what you would promote other leaders to think about? Yeah, you know, I, I think we got to be very intentional when we pick leaders and put them in school buildings because I think they need to have that. For me, you know, I, I, I sat in a cell for 24 hours a day in solitary confinement, so I was at zero. So everything beyond that is a, a win. So yeah, if, I, if, I strike out, if I strike out tomorrow, <laughs> you know, it was a good life, you know. So my level for risk is, is very different, and I've made history. Like, I was the first kid to ever take my SATs behind bars. So I've done things and I've proven to myself that I can do it. So I'm, I walk around with a high, high level of confidence and my connection to the work is very unique. So for me, this is not just a job. I know what it's like to talk to young boys in a cell block and hear their stories. That will never leave my mind. I, Anthony was a kid I met in jail and I met him in solitary and he would leave solitary, go to general population, get in a fight, come back. And I said, Anthony, man, why you keep coming back to solitary confinement? That's 23 hours a day in a cell. And he said, Kwame, your father comes to see you every week. I said, he does. He said, my father was in the next unit, and I met him here for the first time. That was Anthony's story. So I met kids like that. When you have that on you and in your spirit and you, you, you think about those, those stories, you push in a different way. But to get back to your question, we got to have leaders who are willing to take risks, who aren't approaching this as a career path. You know, because I go into too many schools – where teachers see the kids as as them and the teachers are us and there's yeah. a disconnect yeah even in the black community yeah right and we gotta approach these things differently where we see these families as we say defending potential in our work and when you say defending potential you acknowledge that young people already have potential you acknowledge that families already have potential too often i think we gotta we think we gotta create potential or save potential 
young people don't need saving or someone to create potential. They're born with it. And if you approach work that way, you, you have a different, I think, outcome. What, what do you mean when you say even the black community? So you can go to a black school um, that has, like where I grew up in, in New York, upstate. Most of my teachers, my principals, uh, my superintendent were all white. No one looked like me, okay. right? As I've traveled through the South, you just pick Atlanta, for example. Yeah, right. They have black leadership, black teachers, black superintendent, black, black everything, right? And that's amazing, Yes. right? But even with that, we still don't have the, the right outcomes for young people. So what I'm saying is we got to we got to really meet young people where they are and defend their potential and think differently about solutions. You know, instruction is great, but these these issues they're coming with in the school building are preventing them from even taking advantage of that. So you as um, you as a leader, yeah. a risk taker, um, but also as as an African-American leader. Yeah. Do you experience particular challenges that you feel that you have to navigate that are just different and you have a strategy for? Do you just lead blindly because you believe in the mission? What is your strategy on moving things? Because all leaders have to zig and zag, right? It's never a straight line. Yeah. So how do you have to consider that as you lead, even maybe even as you push harder for more innovative ideas and approaches? Do you find that's a challenge you have to navigate as as a black man? Yeah, definitely it's a challenge. You know, one of my superpowers is my ability to navigate in the streets, but also in the suites. So I'm comfortable in both environments. And I know how to navigate and I know how to bring people together, which has given me a lot of success in my career because I can bring people of all different races, all different backgrounds. I've been able to connect and bring people together. And I think we need more of that, right? But as a leader, yeah, we as a black leader, you definitely have to navigate. Not, not everyone has those skill sets, right? But that is something uh, that I've been shown and taught by my mentors, and I have people who support me that help me sort of figure out how to navigate all these dynamics. You know, you think about Georgia or Atlanta. It's a very divided city. Yes, it is. You know, you yeah, got, there's, you got, there's Highway 20. Highway 20, yeah. Right? It's a divided city, and, and it's new to me. I've been here eight years, but I've been uh, fortunate to be able to bring different people together from different groups. And, and, and when you, you get the right people, regardless of their color in the room, if they want solutions, typically people will figure out a way to work together. But you just got to have the right people, the right leadership. That's what it boils down to. So um, when you see, as, because clearly so much of your work um, intersects and supports you know, the, the school systems, um, and you just described some of the, maybe even some of the challenges with leaders that you see. When you see a, uh, a successful, impressive school leader, whether that's at the district level or the school level, what are some of those attributes that, that you can tell? Like when I meet a particular leader, sometimes it's really obvious. It almost slaps me in the face. Like, you know, this woman or this man is impressive, and this is why. What do you see? What, what's, what's an impressive school or district leader for you? So it, it, to me, it boils down to people who are in their passion and in their, in their lane and people who have identified their superpowers and are using them to, co to collectively together. So when I meet an outstanding leader, whether it's a teacher or principal, typically they have that passion. It's not a career path for them, right? They're a problem solver. Those are, those are some of like the key things I, I've seen in schools in particular of folks who've been successful and not. If this is just a career path for you, Especially working in public education in inner cities, it's not gonna it's not gonna work. So when you say career path, 
so I'm assuming you're you're making a differentiation between career path and say this is my passion or this is my why, right? Yeah. This is what I'm here to do right now. Is is that how you describe it? Correct. Yeah, the job, just a job, or is this really your passion? Do you really care about these kids? Because you got it. This is a tough being a teacher, a principal, any any type of school leader is a tough job. And if that's just a job for you, if that's just a one year experience for you, you're not going to be successful, and the kids are going to know it. So I've taken, you know tons of your time already and you're very generous to come in and meet with us face to face because I know you're busy um, so I'll, I'll kind of end with this question most of our processes to support leaders in the leadership circle they're roundtable processes right we're the connective tissue connecting leaders to leaders so that they're helping each other with you know some solutions to some of the challenges this is the one thing we do though that provides content to them is mm -hmm. through these leader chats but if you and I were to pretend around this table, we're superintendents, assistant superintendents, principals, what would be kind of your, you know, your brass tacks, last piece of advice you want to leave them with? Yeah, I would tell them, you know, to, to try to figure out ways to make mentorship a part of what you do in your school buildings, because young people need it now more than ever, uh, whether it's with us or someone else, whether it's volunteers, young people need to have interaction with caring adults outside of instruction, right? There was a study done after some of the school shootings, Columbine, we, you know, we forget about that way back in the day. <laughs> the FBI commissioned uh, the, a school shooter report. I don't know if you're familiar with this. I am, yeah. yeah. And they looked at to see if there were common trends against all the different shooters, like were they all the same race, different ages? It was all different. But what they found was there was one common thing that all these young people had did. And one thing was that they all told someone they were going to do it before they did it. But they didn't have that. That information wasn't communicated or, or was missed. Young people are crying out for help. And if they don't have a place to go, in particular in a school building where they're spending most of their time anyway, then we're I think we're missing out in society to, to support young people the way they need to be supported in the society we live in today. Well, and the one thing I want to make sure that we take away from um, your advice and story is this concept of um, risk taking. Yeah. I mean, you didn't you didn't call it that at the beginning, but um, a leader's need to to truly be an entrepreneur and sometimes think differently as opposed to tr traditionally, because. As you describe, let's face it, there's a lot of kids that need more relationships with caring adults. Yeah. And we need to find a strategy to make that happen. Yeah. Instruction's important, but relationships are more important. Yeah, more important. And as a leader, I would also say, make sure you're getting input from the community. And that seems like a simple thing, right? But I even, with our organization, we serve thousands of young people. I realized that we weren't listening to youth enough. We, we think they, they need a mentor in this kind of way, but they may want something different. So are you actually listening to your constituents? Are you listening to your families and your, your kids? Are you asking them what they need? Or are you just assuming this is what they, they want? And if you're not careful, you can fall into that, to that trap. So I, the community needs to be an ally with you. You need to get input from them and figure out what they need. And then I think your solutions and your programs and all the things you offer need to be catered to that versus what you were taught in school and you think this is what they need. So Kwame, this is um, this is exactly what we hope for in a leader chat. Yeah. Um, the, this idea that we bring an impressive leader um, to the table 
who can provide some very solid uh, perspective and advice to other leaders in a very kind of digestible, pragmatic way, yeah. right? Leaders are having a hard time reading white papers and research and even books, right? Because time is of the essence, right? Most valuable commodity and they just fall asleep because yeah. they're exhausted. Yeah. So <laughs> this is a really effective way and the only reason it's good is because we have leaders like you at the table with us. So appreciate really appreciate you being willing to do this for us. No, appreciate what you all are doing. It's amazing and you know, definitely want to stay connected with you, Jeff, and the work that you all are doing, but it's really about supporting leaders. So I really respect what you all are doing. It's amazing. Well, thank you. Yeah. Well, thank you, Kwame. Ladies and gentlemen, um, that's it. That You see, this is how we learn by tapping the collective wisdom of other leaders in the field doing impressive work. I believe in collaboration. I believe is the best form of professional development is for people to engage in discourse and for us to listen. So we're thrilled that we had the chance to talk with Kwame today. We ask that you have an incredible week. Thank you for the work that you're doing to support children and communities. It is noble work. Be well.